Amen. Amen. Good morning. Happy New Year. Thank you, Harold. Tell you what, uh, if this start of the new year is any indication of where we're headed, I'm not sure I want to go any further. It's been a tough couple of weeks already, hadn't it? Um, I never in my lifetime thought I would see um, what we saw in the Capitol happen this past week. Uh, they looked like a bunch of Cretans, didn't they? Crazy people. Uh, interestingly enough, we're going to get into what a Cretan is and why that's a negative term today. At least that's one of the things we're going to talk about. I'm excited about getting into our new series called Foundations as we study the book, the letter, uh, the assignment to Titus, titled Titus, a part of the pastorals of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and the letter of Titus. Um, but I'll tell you, there's some things I do know for sure. Uh, one thing I know for sure is we need godly leaders <laughs> in our country, uh, in our society, but especially in the church, right? We need godly leaders. We also need to be a people of God who understands the word of God and lives the, the ways of God. There's also the reality that we need to understand as a people of God how to live in a society, how he wants us to be seen in, in uh, culture, in government. Interestingly enough, all of those themes are covered in the book of Titus. Um, we didn't plan Titus uh, as this uh, post-revolutionary message series. It's just that our God is so good and so timely that as he led, laid this on our hearts to cover, uh, this is exactly where we are uh, as a country in many ways and as a church. So my prayer is that God would use this next eight weeks to train us as a people of God raise up some leaders within our body still further and help us to know how to live in, in the society that we live in. So I, I'm excited about our series. I wanna, I'm calling it this morning Intro and Identity because there's part of what I want to do is introduce you to what this book is about. And the way we're going to do it is sort of uh, investigative study. I'll talk about that in just a second. But uh, let me give you some background on, on Titus. Number one, it was written from the Apostle Paul to his uh, apprentice, if you will, his his dear friend, his son in the faith, we'll learn a little bit, Titus. Paul had started the church, or at least started the, the process of evangelization and establishing churches on the island of Crete. Uh, you see some of that in Acts 27, though we're not given very much detail about it. We know they were there, and we know Paul was doing what Paul does, right? Which is share his love story of Jesus and how good uh, God is and the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. So he's sharing these things uh, on the island of Crete. He was on his uh, way to Rome the first time, didn't have time to really organize what the church would look like, but he was just making disciples and establishing people. That's where Titus comes in. Titus, in, in a way, if you will, is sort of like a Green Beret. He's sort of like a Navy SEAL or a Ranger. Those guys are just bad to the bone, aren't they? I mean, they're just, they can go into the most chaotic of situations. I mean, just governments in a wreck, in a heap. Uh, unbelievable, horrible, chaotic situations and bring order. They can set up communications. They can set up a hospital. They can set up uh, all the de defenses. They can do these things in just a short amount of time. And that's not unlike what Paul was asking of Titus, except not necessarily from a military sense, but from a spiritual sense. Put things in order. Get things ready. Establish the church. And that's, in, in a sense, what the book of Titus is from Paul. Paul says, listen, find godly leaders, preach the gospel so that people's lives are transformed, so that God is doing something in them. This is a basic how-to manual for how to plant a church in a uh, crazy situation, in a godless society, which won't hurt us to learn from that as well. Uh, he most likely writes this letter after writing 1 Timothy. And so you get this sense that Paul is entering the end, he's, he's towards the end of his, his uh, ministry. And at the end of ministry, uh, godly leaders find other good leaders. In fact, they should be doing it kind of all along ministry. But you get this sense that Paul is handing off ministry, right? He's handing off to, to Timothy uh, this, this importance of preaching the gospel, being godly, being able to refute uh, false doctrine, all these things. He's, he's giving this away. And that's what he's doing to Titus as well. He's going to set Timothy up uh, to be sort of a bishop over churches, in Ephesus, and he's setting up Titus here 
to be over the churches and help establish the churches on the island of Crete. So he's helping them to carry on this mission and this ministry that God had given him uh, through Jesus. So Paul's on his fourth missionary journey. Uh, He's on his way back to Rome. He's kind of made this big circle, if you will, through the Mediterranean. And he's, he's hit all these churches. He's, and again, I love how he just keeps going back, strengthening the disciples, helping people understand what it means to follow Christ further and deeper and further. And he just kind of keeps circling back around. And he's probably in Corinth. We'll talk about that when he writes this book. But he's left Titus on the island of Crete. And so this is an instruction manual back to Titus about how to establish the church. If you got your Bible, open them up to Titus with me, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. doesn't sound like a lot, but it kind of packs a wallop, if you will. So let's uh, take a look at these verses. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. Verse 4, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Pray with him this morning as we begin to unpack this book. Father, you're so good. I pray that today, collectively, Lord, we would just take a deep breath, breathe in your grace, breathe in your goodness. God, that you would calm our souls, our nerves, our hearts, our lives with your presence and the power of your sovereignty, that you are in control of all things, that we surrender to you. And even this morning, God, if there's uh, anxiety, God, I pray that, that we would just lay those cares down at your feet. Just take a deep breath today, God, in you. Remember how good you are, how much you love us. Lord, as we humbly enter this new study in this book, God, I pray that you would lead us to all truth, God, that you'd have us to know. God, that by your mercy and grace, you'd help me to decrease from the conversation that you would increase and that you would just show us all the things that you'd have us to to understand so that it helps lead our lives from... uh, being people of sinfulness to a people of godliness. That's our prayer today. And I pray that you'd help us to learn and dig deep into your word today. Uh, In Jesus' precious name, amen. So we're going to look at this kind of uh, almost as an investigation. I thought one of the best ways to do with this uh, would be sort of the who, what, where, when, why, and how kind of approach today. Let me say this before I get going, though. Have you ever started a job, and when you got in the job, you realized there was the, the guy before you was there, and he was awesome at the job, and you're, like, trying to figure out how to catch up and, you know, do a decent job yourself? Have you ever been in that position? I've actually been in that position two or three times where the guy ahead of me was much better than me, and I'm kind of treading water, and I'm trying to figure out what I need to do. In fact... Uh, it wasn't but about a f- little over four years ago that I came into that situation where I became the pastor of Temple Baptist Church, and the Jerry Kidd had been the pastor of that church. And in my heart, and I don't say I'm not being that, I'm not being facetious, I'm being honest. In my heart, that was a, that's a special man, right? I mean, this is a godly uh, missionary uh, servant of the Lord, and I'm like, really, Lord? I'm going to fill those shoes? I don't think so, Right? But uh, I'm, And I'm so grateful for God's goodness that, that I not only had the privilege to come and serve uh, uh, after Pastor Jerry, but I've had the unbelievable joy of serving with him. And I do to this day. And I, don't you love Pastor Jerry? Amen. Yeah, you can clap for him. That's good. We love you, brother. Well, there's no question that's probably a little bit of what Titus felt, don't you think? I mean, here Paul had been on the island of Crete, and he had been making disciples and telling stories and preaching, and then all of a sudden, here's Titus. Here's my job now, right? And Lord, I hope I've got what it takes. And in the beauty of uh, godly succession, and in the beauty of this book, Paul really does encourage Titus that he does have what it takes. We're going to get into that just a little bit. But I want us to look today about the who, the what, 
the where, the when, the why, and the how of Titus, just so we have a good understanding of context. So who are we talking about? Well, number one, we're talking about Paul. He writes the book. We've followed Paul throughout the, the Acts study. We've been uh, introduced to Paul. we kind of got a good understanding of who Paul is for the most part. Paul doesn't play around. He is on mission with a team of guys that he is most likely con- converted or, or, or discipled, and they're with him. He takes them with him around uh, the known world to get out this mission of the gospel of Jesus. When he does this, he gives his testimony. He talks about Messiah in the synagogues. He, he helps people to understand these questions. He takes time, and he puts these people together, creating communities. And It's just sort of his process. We call it the Pauline cycle. Uh, we know that Paul is important in the sense that uh, Jesus told Ananias, which Ananias, you might remember from Acts chapter 9, is the guy who's going to go and pray for Saul. And remember, he goes, really, Lord, the Saul who's been killing Christians, that Saul? And you know, the Lord's like, yep, <laughs> right? And so he's going to go to Saul, and he's going to pray over him. And he's, as he prays, the, the scales fall from Saul's eyes, and he can see, and uh, Saul gets saved He gets baptized. Well, Jesus had told Ananias, the man that prayed for Saul, this man, Saul, is going to be somebody who preaches the gospel to the nation of Israel. He's going to be somebody who preaches to kings. God is going to use him tremendously. You don't see it right now. But one day God's going to do something incredible. Maybe there's somebody in your life, or maybe it's you, that you would say, there's no way God could use my life. There's no way God could use uh, a sinner and a broken idiot like me, <laughs> yeah, he can. And we see it even in the story uh, of Saul. Of course, he didn't become Paul for quite a while, though we, sometimes we think it was right there. It, it, it wasn't necessarily. But Paul, he's preaching the gospel everywhere he goes, and he's, he's given this responsibility to preach, but he also has this really interesting responsibility to establish the church. Now, if you're just reading, some of you have started new reading plans and you're reading through the Bible. Sometimes we're guilty, especially in reading plans like that, just kind of going, check it off, I got it done. Instead of really digging deep into what we're reading. Sometimes we, you probably read over maybe some of this passage in Ephesians and just kind of read through it and not understood what it's saying. It is a big deal, what I'm about to read in Ephesians, especially uh, when it comes to Paul and when it comes to the church. Look with me in Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 7 through 10. It says, of this gospel, Paul says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's the first job description we have of Paul, right? To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's his first job description. Look look at verse 9. It says, and, and we're going to read it slowly, to bring to light for everyone, to expose it, to show it, to help teach it, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. Anybody remember what the mystery is? The mystery is the fact that for, for a millennia, right, Jews and Gentiles have been separated, segregated, prejudiced. They don't want to be anywhere near one another. And yet that's not God's heart. He wants us to be together, right, under the understanding of who Jesus is. So when we know Christ, Ephesians 2 tells us, then we are brought together, that the dividing wall is broken down. We are one in Christ. And the mystery is that God could bring two groups of people, or any race for that matter, together for the glory of God. That's the mystery. How could God do something so incredible that they had never seen done before? The mystery is the coming together of these races under Christ. So Paul is saying, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of bringing these people together. The mystery. It's been hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. He says a little bit earlier in chapter 3 that this mystery and this plan and this job description 
has not been given to prophets and people in the past. This is a new job description. This is a new uh, assignment for Paul to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to set in order, to, plan, to, to show the plan, to bring it to light, to help everybody understand the administration, the blueprint, how the church is supposed to work. And so Paul has been given this unbelievable assignment, yes, to preach, but also to, also to establish what the church is, how it works, how, how, how it, uh, it looks, and in so doing that the church would be able to be a part of this showing the world and in heavenly uh, realms the manifold wisdom of God. So Paul is defining uh, what he's done here in Ephesians, but in Titus chapter 1, I'll go back and read that first verse again to you. Paul is defining who he is, his identity. Paul, a servant of God uh, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And I want us to stop right there. The first thing you, you see is Paul says, I'm a servant. In the Greek, that word is doulos. And it means bond servant. It actually means slave. And it's not just slave. It's the lowest possible slave you can possibly be. You will never be yours again. You're, you're going to be owned by someone else for the rest of your life. Paul says, I am a slave of the lowest order of God Almighty. In other words, I don't care about my life. I don't live for myself. I am his and his alone. He, he's bought me with a price. That price was the blood of Jesus. And I'm his. And I don't have any plan of my own. But I do have a plan. And that plan is the plan of Jesus that he's given me as an apostle. That's the second thing he says. He says, I'm an apostle, which, of course, we know is a very high position in the early church. There's 12 apostles. There's, there's Paul the apostle. It just means they've been sent out. The word apostle means that you've been sent on mission. You've heard me say the capital A apostle means that you've been sent on mission literally by Jesus himself. Paul was. So Paul is doing two things. He's saying, I'm lowly because I know who I was and the mess that I've been in my life. And Jesus has saved me. I'm the lowest of low bondservant. But I'm also an apostle. And being an apostle gives credibility to giving an assignment to Titus for the establishment of the church. Because remember what Paul's job description was in Ephesians? To bring to light the plan, the order, the administration of the church and giving these instructions to Timothy in Ephesus and Titus on the island of Crete is all part of this plan. You with me? So there's Paul, there's also Titus. Uh, in this passage we read, he calls him my, my son, my true child in our common faith. So Paul loved Titus. He was most likely a convert of Paul. Uh, most likely he came from Paul's ministry uh, and journey in Galatia. It's probably where Titus, he met Titus for the most part. We see Titus' name show, uh, show up 13 times in the New Testament. Uh, and what's interesting, one of the things we know about Titus is he, he kind of is the model of what Paul is, you know, God is doing through Paul. So you remember the uh, Jerusalem Council, Acts 15, right? Let me give you a recap. Paul is battling this false doctrine that we have to add something to our salvation to know Christ. There are these people from the Judea area. They're called Judaizers. That's the reason they're called that, from the Jerusalem church. Most of them are Pharisees. And they're raising up this false narrative that in order to be saved, you got to do something. you got to bring something to the table in order to be saved. They said you had to be circumcised. You had to have these works of the law in order to know Christ. That's not true. And Paul had been preaching for years and years that that's not true. That, in fact, the, the gift of salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith, and in Christ alone. And so that's what Paul had been preaching. And he, he starts going, I'm hearing of these people adding works to salvation. So he's battling this in Galatia. They're battling it in Antioch. They're battling it in Jerusalem. And so Acts 15 tells us the story of Paul going to Jerusalem. And remember, he takes Barnabas with him. And they're going to they're gonna kind of battle this argument over, do you have to be circumcised to be saved? Well, he speaks of this in Galatia, and he takes Titus with him. Look with me. Uh, in Galatians 2, 1 through 3. It says, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation 
and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, those are most likely the other apostles, right? The gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, the, this, this free grace, this God, you don't, you don't bring anything to salvation, in other words, what I've been preaching. In order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain, I wasn't preaching something I wasn't supposed to. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So Titus is Paul's convert, his disciple. He loves him very much. In fact, he's a model of what God is doing through Paul uh, to the Gentiles. So Paul brings up Titus to the Jerusalem council and goes, see this Greek? You see this Gentile? He loves Jesus. And there's no difference in him than there is in you. And it's this beautiful moment of literally Titus standing before them uncircumcised. And in the sense that he, he hasn't brought anything to his salvation experience. That God has saved this Gentile. And he's about to do, do it a lot more, right? So Paul is uh, very close to Titus. He's been a companion in ministry for a long time. In fact, most of Paul's ministry, Titus was with him. A long, long time, a trusted friend. Titus had been with Paul on the third missionary journey when uh, they're in Ephesus. And Paul sends Titus to Corinth. Now, do you know or remember much about the church at Corinth? Let me just say, it's a mess, right? The church in Corinth is a mess. There's fighting. There's lack of respect. There's sexual immorality. There's all these awful, sinful things going on in the church. And Paul sends Titus. What does that say about Titus? It says that he knows how to come into a chaotic situation and deal with broken relationships, put things back together. He's, he's winsome enough that people listen to him, people follow him, and he, Paul sends him knowing this, of course. Uh, we see that in... Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, there's this, there's this moment where Paul can't find Titus, and it breaks his heart, and he even can't even hardly move forward in ministry. He's got to find his friend. That just shows a little bit of his heart and his care for Titus. We see in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, Paul is going to send a letter to the Corinthian church, and it's called traditionally the severe letter, <laughs> because basically Paul is rebuking the church for not... Uh, they've been kind of rejecting Paul's authority. And so Paul's going to rebuke them. And guess what? He gives that letter to Titus. <laughs> How would you like to be that assignment, right? Hey, guys, got something you need to read. <laughs> See you later. You know, duck back out. Clearly, Paul thinks Titus is a guy who can handle difficult moments. Difficult, broken, chaotic relationships. Uh, a little bit later, we see that Paul is also going to entrust Titus with collecting the offering. Remember the offering we've been talking about in Acts that has been taken from the Macedonian churches? They're raising this offering so that Paul and his team can take this money down to the, the broken and, and, and poor Jerusalem church and bless this Jerusalem church. Well, he asked Titus to go and receive that offering. So here, just in a few of these uh, relational dynamics about Paul and Titus, we see trust, we see that he believes Titus can handle a difficult moment, crazy people, and he can be trusted. His integrity is on point. He can be trusted. He has character, right? In this situation, hey, go get that money. So he's trusting him on all these different levels of leadership. Paul even says in 2 Corinthians 8 that me and Titus have the same heart. That's, pretty, that's a pretty good thing, huh? He writes to the Corinthian church, Titus and I have the same heart. And then he goes over to, to chapter 12 in 2 Corinthians and says, you know, in fact, we do, we do ministry the same way. How he, how he does it, I do it. And how I do it, he does it. So there's all these clues of this relationship between Paul and Titus. Clearly, Paul trusts Titus to, to do this job on the island of Crete. There's a third party in the who. And that is the elect. Right? That's what I want to read the verse again, chapter 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Now, some of you, that's a buzzword. It kind of is for me a little bit. You hear that word, the elect, and I, I'm not going to go into a massive uh, dissertation on my thoughts or what, that whole thing this morning. We'll get into it at some point a little bit more. 
it's a fancy word for saying God's chosen people, right? And so, basically, I'm not going to get into the dynamics of all of that this morning, but I, there's a writer that, that I really like as a commentarian who kind of speaks to a little bit of, of this. I like the way he puts it. Daniel Aiken, he says, Paul sees no dichotomy, no contradiction between the sovereignty of God and human responsibility of man. Salvation from beginning to end is the sovereign work of the grace of God. And yet no one will be saved who does not repent and believe. And all who repent and believe will be saved, right? So that's kind of, I think that's a good position to be in. So these are the who, right? This is who we're talking about and who's involved in this book. Uh, what about the what? What is the what? It's the assignment that Paul is giving to Titus on the island of Crete. Point elders, uh, bring Jesus to these people so they can live lives for Christ, teach them how to live uh, with Christian conduct in their lives in society. It's an instruction manual, if you will. It's a blueprint for planting churches and uh, leading the church, and that's why I thought it was so important for us uh, to look at it and dig into it now. So we got the who, we got the what, what about the where? Uh, Paul is writing this letter most likely from Corinth, potentially. Uh, it's towards the end of his fourth missionary journey in between Roman imprisonments. So this is what's about to happen. Paul's going to finish uh, writing this letter. He's going to go back to Rome. He's going to write 2 Timothy. That's going to be his last letter. And after he writes his last letter, he's going to be martyred and uh, beheaded in Rome. He writes this letter to Titus. Titus is, is on the island of Crete. This island is, is uh, an island sitting right in the middle, or sort of to the left, uh, in the Mediterranean, off the coast of Greece. It's an important and influential place because it has all these ports, seaports, all around the island. So there's trade and export and import all over that island, going from all over the world to all over the world. Guess what Paul wants to export from Crete to the rest of the world? The gospel, Right? He is, he's chosen this island. He sees it as an opportune place that the gospel would take root and flourish and then go. That's his hope. That's the visionary that Paul is. He sees this island and goes, we need churches there. And he's also just taking the gospel of Jesus wherever he goes. And so as he's there for, a, for a, an extended period of time, he's making disciples and building the church. Uh, here's the thing about Crete, though. It's not a very good place to go. It's not like hey, I think God's called me to Hawaii, right? I've always sort of quietly prayed for that prayer in my soul, and the Lord has not answered that prayer. Um, Crete is not like Hawaii. Crete was a, not a good place. Um, in fact, a little later in chapter 1, Paul's going to describe the people of Crete like this. He says, uh, the Cretans, by the way, does that word mean anything to you? The Cretans are liars, they're evil beasts and lazy gluttons. Thank you very much, Paul. It's not a good place. It's, it's a scary place. And literally the word for liar in Greek has the word cretin in it. They defined liar with the word cretin. So it's known for having corrupt leaders who lie. It's known for being a dangerous place. It's known for being full of sexual immorality, paganism, other gods and idolatry. So this is a difficult assignment where Titus has found himself. Here's the next one, when? When did this happen? Well, uh, again, I said uh, Paul wrote this most likely between Roman imprisonments on his way back to Rome, probably between 63 and 66 AD. It's towards the end of his ministry, like I said. Um, so the, these are the specifics, right? We, uh, we've, we don't stay here too long. But it's good to give context so we can understand what's happening, what Crete is about, who Titus is, why Paul thinks Titus can handle such an assignment, what Paul's doing. Those things are good to know. The who, the what, the where, the when. But those are logistical most likely in nature. But when we get to the why and the how, we get into the spiritual. And we start to truly understand what Paul is doing and why he's giving this letter and the heart behind it. So why, Paul? Why did you write this letter? Well, we've already mentioned that one reason is to give this assignment to Titus to establish the church on Crete, but it goes deeper than that. Look with me in our text. Titus 1, I'm going to repeat it again. It's so short, I'll just keep repeating the whole thing. 
verse 1. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life. Why was this letter written? It's written so that God's people will have faith. Right? And by the way, you can't really be a part of God's people without faith. It's what connects you to the family of God. You have to have faith. You have to believe. Hebrews 11.6 says it's impossible. Without, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Can I just ask this question as well this moment? What in your life are you extending towards faith? Maybe collectively we need to go, and I believe God's going to do something this year for his glory and our good. Could we have that much faith? Could we put that out there and say, I know it's been rough. It's been rough in my family. It's been rough in work. It's been rough in these places. God, give me faith to be extended toward what you want to do in this year. So Paul's writing this so that God's people have faith. But it's not just something we believe. It's also something that we should know. Their knowledge of the truth. Can I just say, when you become a Christian, you don't check your brain at the door. Now, I know some Christians who that seems like exactly what they did. Um, that was a joke. Um, but you don't. If we believe God is the God of the universe, then he's God of science. He's God of history, right? He's God of math. He's God of every single thing. He's king of kings and lord of lords. We have nothing to be afraid of. Because he's God Almighty. So we believe that, we trust that, but we need to understand that more. And to understand it, we have to know the truth. We have to dig in. We have to be intentional about what we're learning. God wants us to understand the word. He wants us to go deep in biblical knowledge. Seminary is not just for one or two of us in this room. Then We send somebody off and go, I sure hope they come back and really explain the deep things of God. No. God's heart is that you all understand the deep things of God and that we're all in seminary, in essence. That we're all going through an understanding, a learning, a growing, a seeking, a searching to find who God is, that he would give us not just the faith in Christ, but a knowledge of the truth, right? That's our hope. That's who we want to be. I like the way this commentarian puts it. He says, the disciplined, I don't like that word. I just tell you, listen, the disciplined, that means you're making it a part of your life. You're forcing yourself to do it. You're being intentional. That's what discipline is, okay? The disciplined study of the knowledge of the truth is necessary to convince our minds and our hearts of our fallen human condition, of God's higher purposes and plans for us, and therefore our desperate need to change. This understanding empowered by the Spirit of God will transform us from self-centered and self-controlled to God-centered and God-controlled, right? That's the purpose of growing in deep knowledge of the truth so that God continues to show us how desperate we are of his grace, how much we need him, how much we need to grow to know him. I love the prayer of Paul in Ephesians chapter 1. This is what he says, Ephesians 1:16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. This is, God, this is Paul's prayer to the church that he loves so much in Ephesus. And he prays that God may give you a spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him. Why? So that you can have eyes, the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, which are the riches of his glorious in inheritance in the saints and what is immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Why is, is Paul giving this letter? So that God's people will have faith and that not just faith, but knowledge, understanding, which leads to wisdom. And if we live with this, this dynamic duo of faith and knowledge, did you know that those two are kind of the secrets to a thriving uh, relationship with Jesus? Faith and knowledge. They lead us somewhere. Where do they lead us? To godliness. That's what the text says. They want to lead us to living godly lives. Our uh, ESV says it accords with godliness. It just means it leads us to it. 
Some of your translations say, uh, shows you how to be godly, shows you how to live godly lives. So this is what happens. Faith plus knowledge equals godliness. Is that the equation in your life? Some of you might look in your heart right now and go, I don't know if I'm godly. I don't know if I'm living a godly life. Well, there's something missing. Either you don't have faith or you don't have knowledge. I mean, it's so important for the people of God to be a people of faith, a people of knowledge, and that our lives show what we believe. In fact, I, I love this, this quote. What I believe will affect how I live, and how I live will demonstrate what I believe. Let me say it again. What you believe will affect how you live, right? And how you live will demonstrate to everybody around you what it is actually that you believe. So when you look at your life and you go, my life is not really showing godly things, well then that says something about what you believe. What you believe should change you. It should radically change you. It should be transformative in your life. It's one of our core values. Transformative discipleship, that this relationship with Jesus has wrecked me in the best and most wonderful of ways. It's changed me forever, it's transformed me. What I believe affects, it transforms how I live and then how I live demonstrates to everyone around me what it is truly that I believe. So the why is God's people to have faith, knowledge, of the truth, but how, and I love how the text shows us how. Titus 1 through 3, chapter 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords or leads us to godliness, accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life. That's the how. The hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. We want to know how we do this? It's because of Jesus. How do we have the faith to believe? How do we have knowledge that leads us to deeper understanding in Christ, that leads us to live godly lives? It's because of the gospel. And only because of the gospel of Jesus. His death, his resurrection, they've given us eternal life. So we believe in faith, we grow in knowledge, and we live lives of godliness because of our salvation. Right? Because we sang this song, this power in the resurrection of Jesus. That's what gives us the ability to do these things. So Paul here wants Titus, and he wants the church uh, on Crete and the people of Crete, and us, by the way, by extension, to know that the one who has done this thing, the gospel, who has given his one and only son to die on a cross, and then by his power raised him from the grave, that God is not the same as the God that's being worshipped on Crete. The people on Crete worshipped a God. His name was Zeus. In fact, the people on the island of Crete thought that Zeus had been born on the island of Crete, so it's kind of a big deal. You know, that guy, our, Zeus was born right here. They told stories about Zeus. They said that Zeus was a liar. He was kind of sketchy in all the things that he did. He was a womanizer, they said, of their God, Zeus. And Paul, in his four verses of introduction, begins the conversation against the God of Crete. He begins to show who the true, the one and true God is, right? This is what he's saying. So he, he's saying uh, that, that this God, our God, the Christian God, is not the same as this God on Crete. Completely different. Uh, he's helping us see that Zeus lies, God does not. Right? Zeus is a horrible and sinful example when our God is holy. Look at this verse in, in Titus again, chapter 1, verse 2. He says, in the hope of eternal life, which is the gospel of Jesus, hope in the resurrection, which God who never lies, see that? He's making a commentary. This is commentary on the God of Crete. Which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word. He's saying, 
For number one, our God never lies, and long before he even thought of Zeus, God was. Our God was, and he manifested his word. We just came from this Christmas season. We talked about uh, Jesus Emmanuel, right? God incarnate, God with us. Jesus is the manifested word of God. We talked about that. And Paul's saying, before the beginning of time, God promised this beautiful plan to save us through the gospel of Jesus, to give us that power. And then he goes on to talk a little bit more about his assignment of preaching and, he, and, and part of the how. So he's going to help Jesus to be known everywhere he goes through preaching, right? This is what he says. That through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. He, he's kind of talking a little bit about what we were talking about in Ephesians 3, what he mentions in Ephesians 3. In other words, it's this, hey, this is part of my assignment. I, I've been called by God's grace to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's one of my assignments. This is this gift of grace that God has given me. And this is what I do. But now with Titus, it's kind of like, he again, this is succession. He's saying, Titus, this is who I've been. This has been my mission. This has been a gift to me. And now I'm handing it to you. You see that? He's saying to Titus, this has been my assignment and now it's yours. Now you preach. Now you go. Now you establish. He's, he's speaking these words of succession. In fact, he writes in 2 Timothy 2, 2, what you have heard from me, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. It's the same thing he's telling to Titus. I'm giving you this assignment, this commission, and he does it in the most beautiful and relational way. Look what he says, verse four. To Titus, my true child in a common faith. I, I, I love that. that. That is family language, right? You're my child. You're not my protege, you're not my intern, you're not just my buddy, my friend, you are my son. Do you, do you have any idea what it feels like? I hope you do, I, I do. My father has been so good at so many times looking at me and saying, son, I'm so proud of you. This is exactly what Paul's doing for Titus. You are my true child, I'm so proud of you. I believe in you. You've got this. You can do this, Paul is saying. My true child in a common faith, which I think that's uh, something pretty special too. He talks about the mystery, right? So here's Jewish Paul who loves and worships and serves Jesus with Gentile Titus who loves and serves and worships Jesus. And he says, my true child in our common, what? I'm no different than you, Titus. We're the same. Our faith is that by God's grace, he saved us and changed us and given us life and hope. Together, me a Jew and you a Gentile, it's the mystery. It's the goodness of God bringing people together that he writes about in Ephesians 2. And then he ends and says, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. I don't know if you hear this, there's confidence he's giving to, to Titus, but there's also commission he's giving to Titus. Confidence, you can do this, commission, go get them, right? He's saying what I have, you have. This is our common faith. And then at the very end here, when he says grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Again, there's this, this language of connectedness language of equality. We're in this together, Titus. You've seen me do it, you do it now. You've heard what I've taught at the hall of Tyrannus, right, in Ephesus. You've been with me on these mission trips. I've sent you to difficult places before, and every time God has been with you, he's going to continue to be with you. You got this. You can do this. We're in this together. So what does it mean for us, South City, this morning? The who, the what, the where, the when, the why, the how. What does it mean for us as believers in a pretty godless and broken society that we find ourselves in today? Well, I think the first question that we have to ask ourselves before we go here is this one. The first thing we see in verse 1 
is this confidence of Paul of who he is. What God has done in his life. He says, I'm a slave. By God's grace, he's forgiven me. He's given me life. I'm a slave. I'm his. I'm here to do whatever he wants. Can you say that of your life? God, this is my life. I'm yours. I surrender that dream. I surrender that hope. I surrender that education. I surrender whatever I have, God. I'm yours. I'm your slave. But Paul also says, but I'm also an apostle. I'm sent. Can you say that? I believe the Bible teaches us that if we know Christ, if we are saved, then we are sent. Little a apostles, right? If we're saved, we're sent. God wants to use your life, your story, your testimony for this world. And men, they need it about now, don't you think? Are you a part of God's family? Just ask this question. Are you a part of God's family? Do you know that you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Are you positive of that? Ask yourself that question. But where do you need to grow in your life this year in your life in Christ? Has your faith in Christ led to a, a desire to know him more, which is leading to a more godly life, right? Is that happening in you? Or are you kind of just overstuck in the faith category? Yeah, I know enough. No. We don't, we don't graduate from discipleship ever. Does your faith, has it led you to knowing Christ more, which leads you to godliness? So let me just ask you a question. I don't know if you're a part of South City or not. Maybe you're watching from home and, and you don't know Christ or your life has is, is not been one that's been given to the Lord the way that Paul gave his. But can I tell you, that's what God's calling of us is right now to humbly present ourselves as people of grace and yet to see this unbelievable commission on our lives to go. That we're not just church people. We don't just go to church. We're not just show up and attendance means something it doesn't. No, to be a Christian is not about your attendance in the church. It's about how you live in the world. It's about how you father your children, how you love your wife, what you do in the dark. That's what it means to be a Christian. And the world needs to see maybe fewer church goers and more Christ servers. That's the hope. That's who we need to be. It's not this external appearance. It's this internal reality of who God wants you to be in your life. That what your faith is and your knowledge of Christ is leads you to a life of godliness. That is the prayer and the question before we close. Are you sharing it? Because can you see in the world, just turn on the news and see how badly this world needs Jesus. No, not the Jesus flag on the Capitol, breaking into the Capitol. That's not the Jesus I'm talking about. I'm talking about the Jesus on his knees, washing the feet of those around him, feeding the hungry, serving everyone, speaking the truth boldly that they need a Savior. I love this picture at the end of at the in chapter four in Acts, the end of the chapter. You see the church. You can just I can just picture these hundred people just standing around, weeping, worshiping, praying that God would give them the boldness to take the gospel of Jesus to the world. Can that be part of our prayer this year? God, would you give us the boldness as a people? to say who you are to us, to speak the truth of who you are, to live it in such a way that we don't even have to say it. Our lives speak it. And when people go, why are you so weird? How, why, how have you dealt with this situation? How are you making it only because of Jesus? May we be a people praying for the boldness to be who he wants us to be, to open our mouths regardless of consequence to make Jesus known, but also this year to know him. Do you want to know him? I do. I want to know him. Father God, we just come to you this morning. We're here today, God, with a desire to know you, with the desire to understand your word more, 
with a desire, Lord, not to just be on the fringe of our faith or our church attenders. God, we want the truth of your word to make its way into our hearts and into our lives and out of our mouth and into our work and into our families. God, would you do something special in us, God, that we know you more. And by that faith and by that knowledge, God, that we be a godly people. God, you have made a promise before the beginning of time, your word tells us this morning. You made a promise and you do not lie. You cannot lie. You are holy. And so God, we can take everything you've said in your word and we can trust it because you do not lie. And just as Pastor Darrell said today, God, our hope is not in, in us. It's not in our jobs. It's not in our bank accounts. God, it's not in, in anything, not in another person, not in a leader, not in a president, not in a uh, political party. God forbid. Lord, our hope, our faith, our life is in you and you alone. May we dig deep into what that means and may we live lives that speak of it. God, what I believe ought to change who I am and how I live and how I live ought to speak of what I believe. May that be true of every person in this place. Every person in our church, every person that calls them a Christ follower. May we be a changed people for your glory. Send us out of this place today to tell people how good you've been to us. To tell people how great you are. So that your name would be famous, God, that you would bring people to repentance. We trust you. We love you. Pray that you would convict us today to, to leave here changed, different than we came in. Give us the hope we need, Lord. That hope is in you alone. I lift my eyes to the hills from where my help comes from. My help comes from the Lord. Lord, you are help and our hope. And we look to you this week and every single day. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Will you stand, please?